All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and Greg is still on his uh, much-needed leave. He is doing some traveling and some writing, uh, but I know he's still listening. So, Greg, shout out to you. Hope you're doing well, my friend. Um, But the good news for you listeners is it's not just going to be me talking about nothing. So... I do have a guest with me today, <laughs> and uh, I'm excited for the conversation. So uh, please help me welcome, you know, clap in your car as long as you don't hit anybody or something like that, uh, for my friend Andrew Davis. Andrew, how's it going, man? Josh, good to be with you. You know, it's not so easy to talk about nothing, after all. <laughs> That's true. It's very difficult. It can get very, like, uh, philosophical and, like, deeply esoteric really quickly, and then, like, no one knows what's going on. And it can sound wise, and then you just say stuff. And if it doesn't make sense, but it sounds smart, then you're good. That's what I've learned. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we could, yeah. Maybe we can get to that. Well, it's good to be with you, man. I know we were trying to do this for a while, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for agreeing to, to hang out. I'm excited. Um, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed uh, meeting. So I met you. We had some, you know, uh, text-type communication uh, previous to theology beer camp, I, I met you for the first yeah. time in, in person at beer camp. And that was a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed the conversations we had and, uh, you know, enjoyed listening to hearing on the panel. And also I'm not gonna lie. I was pretty excited to see, um, you know, somebody enjoying a nice process party, uh, during <laughs> panel, you know, interviews and discussions. So that was exciting. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> that was a really good, a really good time. Yeah. A lot of fun voices and and the beer was delicious. So I can all your listeners, if, if you haven't tried it, give it a try if you still have some. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, as I was saying before we jumped on, I admire your work and I think you're doing good, good work and reaching a, an important community and nourishing, I think, uh, a certain population that has fundamental questions emerging from experience and faith and 
And uh, I think it's just an interesting uh, time for podcasts or for people in general, you know, so I think you're doing some, some important work on that behalf. So well done. Sweet, man. Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the kind words give you know give my my non-existent ego a slight boost it helps <laughs> but uh yeah man Fair so enough. just for uh you know maybe our listeners who haven't uh come across yourself or your work yet could you maybe give us a a quick rundown about who you are and you know what kind of things you find yourself doing absolutely yeah so you know i'm i'm consider myself a kind of connoisseur of life and I've uh, sort of come into that slowly as as those things go. I, you know, was raised in an evangelical uh, household. It, certainly on my mom's side, she's uh, in a deep way was the foundation of my faith. But at the same time, uh, my dad was a PhD psychologist. It was always sparking me to to read more. He's the sort of intellectual foundation of of my inquiry. And so, you know, these two streams have always been at play, sort of in my life. And it's a long and meandering story, but it's it's led me all the way to where I currently stand as program director for the Center for Process Studies. And and many of your listeners will know what the Center for Process Studies is through your previous discussion with, with Andrew Schwartz. But in brief, we're a faculty research center uh, of Claremont School of Theology founded by John Cobb and David Griffin. And for now, almost 50 years, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary conference coming up in February. Uh, we've been uh, exploring, disseminating, applying Whitehead's thought, both both the philosophical dimensions of his thought and theological dimensions to a variety of dis- different disciplines. So my main role now is to research, to write, to teach, and to organize conferences uh, surrounding Whitehead's thought and how it connects to current uh, issues, vital questions of philosophy, science, religion, politics, uh, etc. Um, but of course, the journey that, that brought me here is a much more elaborate and interesting story. Maybe maybe we'll we'll get to that. But in brief, uh, that's what I'm up to currently. So nice, yeah, it sounds fun. Uh, I <laughs> it I is. still uh, always get jealous whenever I I uh, talk to friends who exist in uh, those kind of spaces. It's like a future aspiration of mine. Um, well, you're headed there. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Doing doing my best. Uh as I said in our, our email exchange earlier, I'm in the fake it till you make it stage currently. So maybe one day. <laughs> Fair enough. It's an interesting uh, stage. Yeah, but I guess um just to kind of riff on, on what you were just saying, because I'm deeply interested, uh, because I don't think most people kind of just wake up one day and are like, oh, process theology or process thought is exactly what I'm now interested in. Uh, or, you know, they don't grow up in a church where it's the norm being taught. So coming from like an evangelical background, uh, but also that kind of like philosophy or um, sorry, psychology bit from your uh, father, how did you come to find um, process thought? And like, how has that changed and impacted uh your life yeah no that's a really great question um it's a challenging question i always find it difficult to sort of retrospectively find the points of connection in in one's sort of faith journey but you know like a lot of people being brought up in the evangelical world there's a lot you take for granted you know and even as a as a kid in in uh, my high school which i returned to teach uh at later in life i was you know bible class is my favorite partly because our, our teacher left a, uh, a room 
full of questions, right? He'd let the questions stand, let there be dialogue, let there debate. So I was sort of given early on a space where creative questions could could flow forth. And I remember even as a kid, you know, going to Rocky Point here in Santa Rosa and, you know, smoking a little cigar with my buddies and just looking at the stars and wondering, like, you know, what on earth is going is going on? You know, so I think of that now because it was sort of early indications of of my interest in religious and philosophical kinds of questions within the context I was given. You know, we're given a context, all of us, and we we sort of critique it and and look back at it and eventually maybe find some some calm in it too. But that's a sort of long process. But I'd say process thought was not something I really became aware of until uh, largely in in my master's program at Claremont. Even before that, I had done a very slight bit of reading in, in process thinking, nothing in depth at Point Loma Nazarene, which is uh, where I went to college for my bachelor's work. And in that phase, really started to wake up to philosophy and uh, religion. Uh, initially, it was an interest in biblical studies, in Christian theology, and then um, interreligious studies, which was sort of um, prompted by a, a study abroad trip all around the world, seeing synagogues, mosques temples, uh, which was quite formative, and just questions for wanting more clarity as to how to understand uh, what it is Christian faith in particular is based upon what it's saying, that the kind of world it, it it is picturing, but also the question of how different religions relate and how we can think about uh, truth and wisdom uh, not being just uh, engaged within one tradition, but, at, but actually applicable and broadly available through a variety of traditions, meaning that God, too, is not uh, say, confined to Jesus, but defined by him. And when you say that, God's much much more widely available. Uh, and this has to be the case, right? Omnipresence is a, a theological conviction that most people who affirm God uh, hold to. And if that's the case, then what is God up to in India? What is God up to in Iran? And all, you know, what is God fundamentally up to? That's a metaphysical question. Um, I was also in in my master's work struggling with the problem of evil, like most people, you know? and unsatisfied largely with the answers. So I began to, I took a class ministry in the problem of evil, and this began to give me some resources to rethink that question and and rethink my affirmation of God uh, via Whitehead, via process thinkers. Um, and, and that led me into wanting to pursue process thought much more deeply. I fell in love with Whitehead, uh, sort of a romantic love affair, uh, which it still is for me today. I, I, I love Whitehead. And, and his thought pushed me to to look much more deeply into metaphysics and questions about reality, questions about ultimacy, and questions about value. So it's been an organic process, a natural process that's been based on my experience, based upon conflicting questions in my own being. And it's not as if these questions have gone away or been fully resolved, but but process thought, this school of thought of you know, under process theology and process philosophy is is something I'm now contributing to and and at home in, if I can if I can use that that sort of language. That's sort of a long way of, of getting to to your question. Yeah, no, it's good, man. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, one of our, our values at Rethinking Faith is we just recognize that uh, people don't exist in a vacuum um, and that the kind of things we find ourselves doing often are because of our story and, the, you know, our own journeys or whatever we've been in. And so... Um, you know, before we, Absolutely. you know, get nerdy, we always kind of like to just figure out like, what is this person's story and, and how is their work couched in that? Um, just because I think that gives, uh, I don't know, like it, it kind of plays into the, re the relationality 
um, aspect yeah. and it helps uh, listeners and also <laughs> me uh, just kind of sure. gauge, sure. you know, the, the environment. And uh, well, also too, I guess I'd want to ask like, what, what is going on with all these Nazarenes going process? Um, <laughs> I think maybe they should be allowed to drink beer and then they wouldn't go do process stuff. Um, or, or maybe they would do it more. <laughs> or maybe they would do it more. That's true. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Nazarene. I mainly went to Point Loma because of, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you know, the environment and the palm trees and the blonde hair and all that. Um, but I awoken academically in that, in that phase, you know, and, and I love, love that period. And of course, Wesley's got some processual dimensions to his thinking. I think there's, it's not a, a big gap that you have to make or jump to uh, process thought from there. There is a form of bridge there, uh, which a lot of thinkers have, have pointed to. So resonances at least. There we go. <laughs> I appreciate it. Sweet. Oh, well, sure. um, so today I specifically wanted to uh, attempt to have conversation uh, with you around your book, Mind, Value, and Cosmos on the Relational Nature of Ultimacy. Um, this was a book yeah. that I picked up at uh, Beer Camp, um, and you were nice enough to to sign it for me, so I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I, I, I enjoyed it. I kind of read it over a period of time, um, intermixed with some of the other stuff I was doing, and I uh, really enjoyed it. I think I have an, an okay grasp of <laughs> the the conversation. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the, so I, let me try to maybe offer somewhat of a quick summary and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Sound good? You got it. All that right. Sounds great. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think part of what you're doing is uh, within, so within the realm of philosophy, uh, obviously, there's lots of different questions being asked. Um, and I think the question of mind, the question of value, and the question of cosmos are three different questions that kind of get focused on within the realm of philosophy. And then some people uh, hold ultimate uh, the question of mind or the question of value or perhaps cosmos. And what you're trying to offer is say, well, wait a minute. What if actually what is ultimate is the three of these things in relation and communication with one another. So instead of siloing them, let's bring them together. And that is uh, like that relationality between the three of them is what is ultimate. How did I do? Yeah. Okay. Not <laughs> good. Not bad. Not bad. Um, yeah. I was going to say, it's not that uh, what I'm trying to argue. And of course, this has been argued before in different sort of ways, this notion that relationality is fundamental, that things ultimately cannot be untangled from each other. So I, I think that's a nice summary. It, it's not just the case that, say, mind or value or the cosmos is ultimate, uh, or say, possibility or just actuality or just God or just the world. But I was seeking the mode in which they are entangled, right? What do we name that relational mode? And, and, and if we approach ultimacy in terms of uh, relationality, can we then make a step or argue our way to saying that relationality is what is ultimate, right? So there's a little sort of flip there. But but another way, um, you know, of course, I use Whitehead, Keith Ford, John Wesley. We, we may go into that if you want. But one way to frame it is, you know, there's different sort of distinctions. So I take something that is ultimate to be something indispensably 
relevant or necessary to the nature of things. It's those uh, conditions, those requirements, uh, without which arguably nothing at all would exist. So that's one question that philosophy is, has pursued, right? What is ultimate in the nature of things? Um, another question is related to that, assuming you can identify, say, something that is ultimate in that way, how does it explain, right? So the question of explanation is another type of question. It's one thing to affirm it as ultimate, another to understand how it explains, say, something like the contingency of the world, arguably, or does it explain itself? And now another complication, so we, you have ultimacy, explanation is relation, the question of relationality. So you can, you know, arguably have access to or argue for something or a series of things being ultimate, might be one, might be many. You can talk about how they explain each other or other sides of things. But the question of how they relate is a, is a distinctive question within that sort of pyramid. And so I'm focusing on that question of relationality uh, to argue creatively for the claim that we should not point to one thing or many things as ultimate, not just a unity, not just a plurality, but a relationality uh, that is properly deserving of that term ultimate, such that even God's life is a result of mutuality, ulti uh, relational ultimacy. Does that make sense? Is that does that add to that? I think I'm just adding a little bit to what what you said, which was which was right on. No, I that that helps a lot. Um, because I think, uh, yeah, I was missing the bit about um, like the actual trying to define and talk about the relate the actual relationality, the relationship. Um, right. and so yeah, so that's helpful. I mean, I mean, it's obviously completely wild and complicated stuff. There's just no way sure. that it that it can't <laughs> that it can't be. So like, it's it's just an adventurous inquiry. And what I love about philosophy is it has not in the least shied away from from this adventure. It's like at its very best, that's what it is. And so this book is is sort of rare in the sense that a lot of philosophy is wanting to be post-metaphysical or just focus on social issues or or identity style things, which is fine. Like all that has a place. But but I, from the beginning, have loved the, the real big questions. And I refuse not to ask them, uh, even, even when people think I should do otherwise. Like even uh, David Griffin, who passed uh, recently, rest in peace, David, he gave me a nice little verb in the beginning of the book that said, this is an excellent example of old-fashioned metaphysics. And then he put in a quote or, or a parenthetical remark, that's not a slam, but a compliment. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of funny because it indicates, you know, the direction or the moods that are shifting in philosophy. I, I, I think metaphysics is indispensable and uh, will not easily go away. And, and those who want to push it away are just uh, relying on a on a deeper underlying metaphysics anyhow so that partly i i think that because of whitehead so anyway now we're jumping no, in. yeah I, I love it man i think for me too like metaphysics is something that uh i have a deep interest in for whatever reason so i, I love the the big questions and um trying to pretend yeah. like i know what i'm talking about sometimes uh but <laughs> um so I'm trying to think the way that I kind of I thought might be helpful to um, maybe attack this, especially for listeners who have no idea what we're even considering talking about, um, is if we could maybe talk about each one of these pieces, you know, mind, value, and cosmos, and then try to do the relationality bit. Um, sure. So I think that that could be helpful. And perhaps I thought maybe we could start with uh, cosmos. Because maybe that, I, I don't know, that seems like the least threatening to me. Maybe not. <laughs> or maybe I'm being right. selfish. 
Um, <laughs> well, the cosmos is threatening. There's a lot of black holes out there, yeah. after all. Oh, yeah. And it's it's crazy, right? It keeps uh, the universe is expanding, and uh, we don't, you know, we kind of understand stuff, but then when we think we do, we discover more stuff, and it ruins everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. so within the... Um, Within your chat or, you know, the the um, bits about Cosmos, though, I think um, you bring to light like these like two questions, like the ontological question and the cosmological question. And they they play very much into this idea of Cosmos. Um, and I think that yeah. could be maybe perhaps an important thing for, for people to kind of grasp. Um, so if we had sure. to start there, what is what's going on? Awesome. Yeah, that, that's great. So. Yeah, let's start with with Cosmos. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I think one of the most fundamental convictions that we have to come to terms with is the fact that we're not separate or other than the cosmos. Uh, for a long time in the modern period, this has been the assumption, even the way we use our language, even our basic dispositions cut us off from being part and parcel of cosmic reality, of reality as such. And one thing I love about Whitehead is he says in brief, that you're not a, an exception to everything that's going on. You're an exemplification of it, right? And I like that way of putting it because it's a reminder that that we're part of the mystery we're trying to understand. When we pose fundamental questions, we are in a deep sense the cosmos posing questions at, its, at itself. And that's just, it's not just like sentiment. Um, it's true, right? We didn't fall into the world from elsewhere um, so that we can be totally different from it. We, we literally grew out of it like a plant grows out of soil. And there's that sort of organic metaphor that's deeply a part of, of process thinking. So, so questions belong uh, inherently in the cosmos because the cosmos is raising them in the form of, of you and me. Now, one of those questions that's raised is, is the question of, of ultimate reason, right? So you mentioned the ontological question. That's one way of framing the ultimate question of existence, right? Heidegger asked it, Leibniz, and a variety of thinkers. And that question is essentially, why is there anything at all? Why is there something rather than absolutely nothing, right? And there's a hot debate about whether that question's legitimate at all or whether it's even worth uttering. The point is, for me, it's been uttered and has been, and I think it's worthwhile, even if ultimately I think it is, you know, maybe nonsensical in some way. So, the ontological question is a big one, right? It's a question that belongs in the universe because the universe raises it. It's a question of meaning, a question of reasoning, um, and, and an adventurous inquiry in and of itself. Um, now, the distinction I make between the ontological question and the cosmological question is an important one, getting, getting to this cosmos theme. Um, the cosmological question is not a question about why there is anything whatsoever a completely general something whatever that might be it's about a particular something why is it that our particular something exists a contingent order a cosmos why order at all and so the cosmological question is important because in a deep sense our existence presupposes a certain order we're an expression of order of the universe and to ask the cosmological question is is more narrow in saying it may be that there had to be something of any kind right but why is there precisely this, right? Why is our universe as such set up in such a way that it allows for our emergence? Um, and one can't deny that it, that it was because we're here after all, right? So there's something about the way in which the universe has an order, the way in which it evolves that is productive of intelligent question-begging uh, apes, right? <laughs> but not just that, right? 
Um, now, and I'll, I'll let you jump in in just a sec, but I'll jump from there just to say that there's been a number of ways to answer those two questions. Um, some have wanted to say, for example, that, you know, it's absurd that there would be nothing. So there has to be something. Uh, but it's not so easy what they say that something has to be. Some have wanted to say, well, you know, there, there's no explanation, just accepted as brute fact, right? And that's, uh, that maybe has a place in some respect, but is, you know, uh, annoying to think about. Quantum chance fluctuations, uh, maybe that's the reason we're here. What I have found most interesting are those traditions that point to either uh, value being an explanation, a reason for being, and or mind being an explanation or reason for being. And I've, I've in this book, I dub a, a certain philosophical tradition, the axionoetic tradition. It's that tradition that in different ways affirms either mind or value or both mind and value as the proper place to start when thinking about how to answer these questions. And the last thing I'll say before I let you jump in is mind and value are important because I believe that we express these realities, we participate in these realities, we are these realities uh, in a deep sense. They're not the kind of things that can be uh, reduced uh, to something else. I, th I think they're sort of places to start to think about um, our expression of this universe as it asks questions about itself. There's a long tradition of, of philosophers doing that value in mind being a, a fundamental and irreducible part of reality. So what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's good. That it's it's helpful, and I think um, you know, just one thing that uh, that stands out. And it's something you said earlier on was just this idea that uh, we kind of like we arose from you know creation or the universe or however you, however you want to put it. Because um, I think a lot of the times, especially within our society, there's this uh, separation where it's like very dualistic and and very anthropocentric. And so what I like about one thing I like about process thought is that it kind of rec it, it switches from this mechanistic understanding of how things work to this more organic um understanding and that has been helpful to me not only because um I mean I I find it beautiful but also because it it helps make uh sense of my actual like lived experience <laughs> um yeah. and also it plays nicely into some of my deep intuitions that i find from the more like you know my more mystical side yeah. of 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 me um absolutely I... well oh, i'm sorry i was, I was just yeah. going to say that i mean i think it's it's such an important and transformative insight and it's so basic right it's not um it's not like inconsequential to, to say that you are an expression of the universe. It's extremely important. And like, so what I learned from Whitehead in part, and not just Whitehead, but a lot of, a lot of thinkers is but Whitehead for me, at least early on showed me that philosophy uh, is essentially or metaphysics. If you want, it's that endeavor to try to frame and categorize systematically the nature of reality and including yourself in that, right? So what must reality ultimately be like because I am a part of it? I think that's the fundamental sort of question of philosophy. And as you said, that's sort of breaking that that sort of dualism there. But, I mean, Whitehead has beautiful statements to this effect. He says, you know, in being ourselves, we are more than ourselves to know that our experience, dim and fragmentary as it is, yet sounds the utmost depths of reality. But it's such a beautiful, beautiful statement, as you said, But but not just that, like, 
there's a sense of belonging in that, right? You belong here. The cosmos has produced you. It has been catering to your emergence. And if it and if it weren't, you wouldn't be here. And yet you are, right? And, and belonging is no like simple thing for me because it's where your being and your longing connect together, right? <laughs> be longing, be slash belonging. And so I think that in itself is is really transformative and, and can give people a sense of being at home in the universe. And a lot of people do not feel that, you know? Yeah, no, the big time. Um, and I... <laughs> I guess too, like I I like the the way you talk about um, I forget how you said it like not uh, you said we're an exemplification of not just um, what was the other e word exception yeah, exception too, too. Yeah. yeah I really like that because uh, it it reminds me of of you know an idea that um, I found kind of you know going off the the Christian path and reading some you know, weird woo-woo stuff. Uh, but there was a, sp- uh, a particular uh, author and thinker that I like who talked about um, like like we are an example of the universe becoming conscious of itself. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's really interesting. And trying to find um, a system or a way of thinking that takes seriously um, that idea, but also takes seriously experience was deeply yeah. helpful and transformative for me, especially because I grew up in a, a religious tradition that said your experience doesn't matter. <laughs> that yeah. actually we were taught to put our experience aside and say it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. Your experience doesn't matter. This here, this book, or however you want to say it, the the man of God, the pastor, the, the interpretation, whatever. That's the ultimate thing. Nothing else matters. Put your experience aside. And so being able to find some like weird experience stuff out there and then be introduced to some of this process thinking and see like, oh, maybe they're not saying the exact same thing, but they're playing nicely together uh, was helpful. Yeah. Totally. I mean, yeah, there's a wisdom. Sense. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So there's a wisdom to our experience. And this is an ancient insight. I mean, the ancient Greek injunction to know thyself. Why? Why do you want to know yourself? Or or the notion in uh, Advaita Vedanta, Hindu modes of thought, right? That Atman is Brahman. Right. I'm not I'm not saying these are equivalent statements, but they're getting at something. Right. If you're not an exception to but an ex- expression of an exemplification of the universe, then that means. You're a clue as to the nature of what's happening and how the world is characterized and what what its activity in nature is like. So you mentioned experience, at least for process thinkers, for Whitehead. Experience is part and parcel of reality because we are. And he starts with human experience as this expression of the universe and works backward metaphysically, right? That's what I like to call retrospective induction. It's just nerdy, nerdy language. But he works backward in reality and never finds a place where experience is wholly absent. And, and if you say it is absent at any one point or emerges or dawns at any one point, um, you also face a challenge there. How, how is something that's wholly devoid of experience and pulpy dead matter, which is just a... a you know, pipe dream now, how, how on earth would experience emerge from that? You know, so it raises fundamental questions. Either experience uh, magically dawns somehow, which we don't know, have that slightest idea, or it's a fundamental part of reality um, all the way down in nature and arguably all the way up to a mode of, a mode of divine experiencing because we don't want to say that experience stops with us, 
right? I was recently in a conference, we're talking about alien intelligence, alien experience, and how to rethink philosophy and theology about this. Well, why should we say that you know, we're the pinnacle of experience in the universe? It seems a strange, strange limitation to what this universe is capable of. So anyway, that's all to say that beginning with experience is fundamental. And, and the traditions at their best, the religious traditions have all held to that. And the mystical strains of the traditions are fundamentally experientially rooted. And so I was raised similarly, you know, the Bible is the word of God, and, and these are where the answers are, you know, your experience is untrustworthy, uh, but there's a way of bringing those together, you know, and when your experience and your doctrine conflict, that's an interesting opportunity. You either trust your doctrine and ignore your experience, uh, or you trust your experience, follow it, and let your doctrine begin to evolve. And I think myself, perhaps you, you included, have followed that experiential track, and I think a lot of the great great thinkers have done precisely that not to say well, yeah i'm some great thinker but I'm, I'm just adventuring along a path that's already been walked before me you know i'm doing it within my own context yeah no i i, I think that's good and important i and i guess too like you know different kinds of people are are more or less predisposed to different ways of you know what they're most comfortable with um but for me like i uh yeah, I the experience is always has always mattered to me. And so, you know, one way of putting, you know, bringing together, you know, that doctrine and experience question you're you're saying is I think um uh Trip actually whenever I talk to him, he has a really nice way of putting it where kind of he talks about um how can we inherit uh inherit the tradition that we've been given well and be faithful to that tradition but also still uh move forward. And not move forward in spite of the tradition we're inheriting, but because of it. And so I think that's like kind of a, yeah. a helpful way that we can bring those things together. And I think that too is, is and you know, this is my more progressive way of thinking, but like, I think that yeah. is a way of being inherently faithful to a tradition is saying, you know, because I think any religious tradition, those people were doing the best with what they knew at their current point in time and being faithful to, you know, whatever deity or, or whatever they're trying to do and so at the same in the same way like almost i feel like you and i have a responsibility to inherit this tradition we've been given and then say okay what does this look like and mean for today on january 20th <laughs> you know 2023 yeah. and how do we be faithful to that um based off what we know now i don't know no, absolutely. And, and it is a deep faithfulness, because that's precisely what, you know, speaking within the Christian context, but but not just the Christian context, it's precisely what the tradition has done. It's it's a current, which means it's moving, and it's a current of conversation and debate and discussion and mystery. You know, it's not just a fact of the past, not just a fact of history. Um, you know, it may be grounded in historical events, but its interpret interpretation is one long discussion. and so. Framing it in that way lightens people up because it's like, oh, okay, this is a current of conversation that you can begin to contribute to. It's not at all about certainty. Um, and that seems obvious, uh, you know, despite what our maybe our mutual upbringings might tell us. Uh, it, it's a call into a form of, of adventure. And that's what I think faith at, at its best is. It's, a, it's an adventure that is uncertain. And still up ahead of you, right? And so I, I've been influenced certainly by Whitehead and Tehard. You know, John Hott is a thinker who would speak of God as being up ahead of you, not just behind you. Such that creation 
uh, or any historical event is not just uh, a matter of looking backward, right? I mean, if you look backward and you're still walking forward, you have a tendency to trip and fall, right? It's like, a, you know, blind man following a blind man. But if God is up ahead of you, right, the mystery is still up ahead of you. Christianity is at its best trying to point to that mystery in ways that relate to the past but are always looking forward. I think that's totally a part of the tradition. That's totally orthodox to me, you know? Um, and if people don't see that, I mean, I think process thinkers dismiss orthodox tradition, classical tradition a bit too much or too easily even though I have my qualms with it too, but like there's much more space within our religious traditions for, I think, the adventure that we want. And that's what we want. We don't want some lame, static, uh, you know, just boring kind of thing. Life and the, the adventure of faith has to be as adventurous as the cosmos itself. Otherwise, you're going to lose people. Um, so I, I happen to be, think that it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Like God has to be at least as big as the universe <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, just, I've always loved the, the quick little phrase, like, you know, a static faith is, is a dead faith. Um, yeah. And like, sure. you know, a static faith might've made sense when we believed that the universe was static, but we know that's not the case <laughs> and that the yeah. universe is rather alive. Um, and again, that's, you know, a, a nice uh, insider thing that process thought I feel like takes seriously is this idea that the universe is not the static thing, but rather is alive. Um, sure. So, yeah, and I guess, yeah, I, um, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, to those viewers, I mean, they're probably listeners of yours who are, fund of, you know, more familiar with process thought. But for those who are not, the claim that becoming is more fundamental than being is important, right? It's precisely what you're getting at, that what is ultimately real is in process, right? To be at all is to first become that thing, right? So becoming is, or being is an outgrowth of becoming. I mean, that connects to thinking about Christian faith, too, because it is historical. It's temporal. Uh, it's a part of Judeo-Christian thinking. Uh, even in the, the prologue to John, the word became flesh, right? So this is a something that's happening, uh, not perhaps just one time, but but all the time, right? God is up ahead of us still, not just uh, I am that I am, right? As someone interpreted the Exodus passage, but I will be what I will be. And that assumes a narrative kind of, of movement, I think is really, really important, not just philosophically, but, but for the faith journey. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think what I love about that too, is it provides that flexibility for faith to still remain uh, relevant regardless of context. Like it provides a flexibility uh, for us to say, this is what I know today. And this is how I can be faithful to my tradition based off everything that I know today. But tomorrow when I learn something new, um, it's not like, oh shit, now I just have to throw this all out. You know, I'm done. I can't be a Christian or, or a theist or whatever, but rather like, okay, there's room here uh, for me to continue to grow uh, based off these yeah. kind of things, which I think is a strength. Not all people agree with that, but I personally think that is helpful. <laughs> um, yeah, right on, man. I, I like that. And, and yeah. like faith, I don't think is, um, it's, it's not like belief. It's not a propositional thing, right? Here's a bunch mm -hmm. of propositions that you're right. supposed to believe and have faith in. It's more of a dispositional thing, right? It's a disposition towards towards the world and committing yourself to trying to live and be and see the world in the kind of way that Christ saw it. Right? There is a haunting ideal. And I don't think any of us uh, <laughs> arguably have a, have achieved that, right? Anyway, so, I mean, we speak of faithfulness a lot and, and it's faithfulness, again, should be this adventure of, this adventurous disposition towards 
a life fully lived, a life rooted in love. That's what I think Christian faith is ultimately about. We have these squabbles about doctrine. Those are great. Those continue and, and will always continue. Um, but I think what people want is the lived experience and expression of the deepest core of Christian faith, which is at the nature of reality, there's a agopic love. And uh, you're trying to run it away, perhaps, but it's it's uh, it's like G-force. It's, it's like coming at you. It's pulling you in or something. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. No, it's good, man. It's good. So if, uh, if I were then, uh, and I'm going to try to take us back a few steps here, if I were to try to, you know, because we talked a bit about the cosmological stuff uh, and the cosmos, yeah. and you mentioned how, you know, people try to ground that in different places. And mind uh, is one possible way of doing that. And so I remember uh, when I first came across the idea, which is going to sound weird because I know it's been uh, something that's been talked about within, um, you know, a variety of religious traditions. But like the idea that uh, maybe matter isn't primary, but rather consciousness or mind could be. Um, when yeah. I first came across that idea, that was really interesting to me. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, and that was reading a dude called Rupert Spira, who I think is just like an idealist, secular philosopher kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I, I remember really liking that kind of understanding. And I had a conversation with Trip one time and I was like, hey, man, like, is it possible to hold to like some kind of idealism and still be a process thinker and like if so is that like a stupid position to hold like what you know and so uh and he and he did what you just did he laughed and uh was like oh joshua um and then when i talked to him earlier today he was like be sure to uh get andrew going on uh like some kind of like process idealism or something so it comes to mind <laughs> that's I, it's not much of a question okay. but there's more so a prompt <laughs> if nothing else <laughs> yeah totally totally well as a side note you know i'm familiar with rupert Spira's work and actually uh, um, the the next volume of how i found god and everyone everyone this next anthology of spiritual memoirs is is that the publisher and, and coming out hopefully this year and Rupert Spiro has written a chapter for me in it. So yeah, and it's, he's got a super interesting journey. His, he's more on the, the Hindu side of Vaita Vedanta, but you're right. The, the prevalence of mind being primary rather than matter. And that might be one way of naming a, a broad definition of what idealism is, right? So it's not about being idealistic or holding high ideals. It's, it's the claim that ideas, ideational mind, like a, a reality is the most fundamental thing there is in the, in the universe. So, um, and that's say, for example, how Keith Ward defines it. I know you're familiar with Ward's work, right? That idealism is not about denying the world exists or everything's just mine. Right? The world is objective. The world can have a reality, but its fundamental basis is ultimately of a of a mental kind. So he makes the claim, and I'll I'll follow him in saying that every major religious tradition is idealistic in this sense, to the extent that they hold a rea- that the reality of God is not just some body somewhere localized, but it is something mind-like, it's something intelligent, something intelligible. So where it connects with, with my work, since we mentioned the cosmos is, you know, one of the questions that we have to answer in asking about existence is not just why actual things exist, but possible things exist too, right? Things that are arguably abstract. Um, possibility, I think, is one of the most interesting questions of philosophy and 
And it's super relevant because we're actualizations of possibility in the universe. And, and we think about, about possibilities and they're mind dependent. But when we think about our existence, our existence is not a possibility that depends on our mentality since we're an expression of it, right? So there's a sense in which our possibility, the infinitude of possibilities that are being actualized, that are woven into the universe are part of its structure. They're necessary in the strongest sense. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big debate. But for me, it's an interesting question to, if you can't escape that conclusion, that possibility seems to have some sort of reality, what framework do you embed that in? Um, do you leave possibilities just floating in some metaphysical void or whatever that is, right? Um, or do you take a step up from seeing that possibilities are mind content on our level to thinking that there could be a universal uh, expression of that same idea, right? That the mind is the storehouse of possibilities and that nothing short of infinite mind would be the storehouse of infinite possibilities. And there are infinite possibilities in some sense, right? Um, so mind becomes a way of thinking about how it is that that possibilities can exist and anything associated with possibilities. One bridge to value is saying that there, there's no such thing as a valueless possibility or a, a neutral possibility. There's states that are possible and they have a certain quality to them, right? So this brings us to value a little bit. But mind becomes a way of, of integrating both possibility and value. The tradition has, has said this long ago. Um, I'll let you jump in before I keep going on that, that train, but, but you see how things start to be entangled already, right? That mind and, and value and possibility and actuality are becoming these concepts that are not so easily divorceable from one another. And when you do divorce them or isolate them, you end up running into some rather hard questions, philosophically speaking. Yeah. So I think, uh, if I can, cause I, I want to try to uh, phrase the possibility bit to make sure that I understand it. So kind of the idea is that um, there, I guess, before something is actualized, it only exists in the realm of possibility. And then that possibility becomes actual. And then it, you know, um, I don't know, I guess Whitehead's word is like, it becomes concrete, uh, like a concrete reality, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, like if we're here and we can do that, then like there has to be something out there where the this current experience or cosmos or whatever existed as a probability and became actualized. So where where is that possible or not po probability possibility? Where's that possibility? Where did that exist at first? Is that kind of the yeah? So and I mean this is a, a huge debate, but but yeah, you're 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 approaching it, I think right. So like. <clears throat> One question is the locus of possibility. Where are they? Where where are these? Are there to be actual means that you're you were previously prior possible in some sense, and you can't really get away from that. Um, possibility seems to be relevant to all of our lives. Uh, it's exemplified in who we are, and things could have been different, right? So there's a contingency associated with with possibilities as well. So does it need a locus or a storehouse of some kind? Um, how is it relevant to the world? Because there's infinite possibilities and we're just finite beings. So is there some sort of filtering or selection principle among possibilities? I mean, even the physicists are talking about this question. What is it that canalizes possibilities such that our universe is ours can be there? And the reason it's problematic to say that, well, maybe possibilities themselves do this is they're not agents, right? I mean, I'm sort of reifying them speaking in their language, but but they're they're abstract. 
they're what could, might be they're up ahead in the sense of not yet you know so it doesn't make it's like the number two doesn't do anything yeah arguably right rather agents do something with with abstract things so so that so possibilities are arguably they require a context of agency a context of mind mind would give them uh, a locus a place to exist agency would give them the means of becoming active in their entry into the world um so i mean it, obviously the the questions go further than that but that's like one way to frame it and well i'll, I'll just stop there and let's jump in <laughs> no it's good thank uh thank you for um i don't know putting up with my my questions and uh trying to help me process these things is that i mean honestly that's a lot of what this this podcast is is just me trying to process and understand things uh in real time that i have found helpful <laughs> and yeah. and my hope or basic assumption is that uh maybe somebody else might find it helpful as well um and so i hope so too yeah kind of the <laughs> the kind of the deal so i um one thing that comes to mind though is where within this conversation where does something like a i don't know to use like tom ward's words like a dual aspect monism where does that come into play in this kind of conversation because that essentially is the idea that you know it's rejecting dualism that you know it's just you know spirit or soul or whatever and matter uh it's also not saying it's just spirit or it's just like this reductive physicalism it's just this like matter it's trying to bring them together and so like that like very clearly is in play in this conversation uh yeah within your book so like how does where does that fit in here yeah that's a good question um well so earlier you you know you sort of raised the question of like what is sort of what is matter you know and so i tried to at least get at the point that for process thinkers matter is never uh, something that's pulpy and dead and devoid of experience but that's just a myth by now in fact paul davies and one of his colleagues some time ago wrote a book called the myth of matter right <laughs> which is kind <laughs> that's of that's the getting... subject object bit right like not a, not uh, a universe of <laughs> objects but subjects well, everything yeah in in part and it, it's also rooted in a sort of newtonian cartesian mechanistic understanding right that that matter doesn't uh, evolve it just is what it is at any one point of time well whitehead completely rejects this and the development of science arguably uh has moved beyond this quite a bit as well so i think what you're pointing to in the language of dual aspect monism and there's different terms is the whole discussion of panpsychism right or pan experientialism um which in brief um is the claim that experience or psyche something mind-like belongs to nature all the way down and again, all, all the way up. So um, so the physical and the mental are not these dualistically separated things. They're uh, phases, if you want, of each other, right? Uh, at least for Whitehead and his conceptualization of it, um, each event, an event of experience, because that's ultimate. what's ultimate for him at the base of things, his ontology, is, is an event that emerges by virtue of its inherited data of the past, right? The, the physical data, if you want, has a physical pole. That, that is oriented towards past physicality but it also has this interior dimension this mental pole that's oriented towards the future what it could be and so in its sweep in its movement of becoming 
it is both physical and mental, a physical pull and a mental pull. You know, so in that 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 is uh, a complexification of either saying it's only mental or it's only physical, right? Idealism, say, on one hand, or, or materialism on the other. In a sense, it's both, but it's only both in the sweep of that process of of development and becoming. Uh, does that help? I mean, that's obviously it's a much larger discussion. Yeah, no, for sure, and that's uh. That's again just me trying to piece things together and and try to get a a grasp on things as I uh, yeah. play play pretend philosopher on the internet. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're pretend philosopher. <laughs> uh, so all right, so we've we've done uh, a bit of of the cosmos stuff. We did a bit with mind, um, and you've mentioned value. But how does okay. I guess perhaps how does this value come to this conversation? And then um, how how do you see, you know, we'll get to like the thesis of your book. How do you see the three of them, uh, I guess, relating to, to one another? Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, right. We mentioned cosmos. We mentioned mind. Um, value comes in because it seems to me, and I sort of follow John Leslie in this and Keith Ward and Whitehead. They're all saying somewhat similar things, although there's distinctions. And those three voices, just for listeners, are are the main sort of dialogical partners in the book. Leslie makes it a, a really fun claim. He says uh, value is is real in the sense that there really can be better and worse states, um, even if no one is there to to know that. Right. So value is not just a purely subjective thing. There can be total universal scenarios, a universe that can be better and worse. Right. So he speaks about like ethical requirements or needs being realities, being necessary and, and being platonic in a deep sense. Right. Plato talked about the good, for example, which is although not existing in actuality, it's that which bestows existence on all things. Right. So all the way back in the history of philosophy, not just Western philosophy, is that there's this claim that that value or goodness, an ethical requirement or a, um, a possibility of value is what itself gives rise to something existing. So um, Leslie makes the, the the wild claim that value can be a reason for something existing. Ward does the same thing. And there's something to this, I think, because like truth, beauty, and goodness, right? These are not just whims that we invent or create. I really think it's, it's the Nietzschean idea that we can just create value. It dies hard in my perspective. Again, that's a different discussion, but... If someone were to ask you, for example, Josh, like, why do you pursue true and beautiful things? You won't appeal to anything else. You say, well, I do because they're they're true and they're beautiful. They're, they're good and they're beautiful, right? So there's a value, an intrinsic value is self-justifying in a certain respect. And so one of the things we have to ask about existing is this stubborn sense of there being real values in the nature of things, values that are what they are independent of what I think about them. Was Auschwitz a good thing or was it a bad thing, right? Um, I want to uphold a worldview that that gives me grounds to categoric, categorically deny that as terrible, you know, uh, deny those events. So Leslie says there are states that are better and worse. Um, now, he doesn't immediately incorporate that in mind. He wants to say there can be a mindless, if you want, value that is the reason for being, right? The value is what produces all things, even a divine mind. But 
Ward takes the other perspective. He wants to say that there is no, like consciousness is primary and that's how you make sense of value rather than value being primary and then producing producing mind. Now where Whitehead comes in is where I think he provides a, a mode of understanding relationality, the relationality between these two things that, that makes sense. Because um, how can value do anything? It's one of those abstract things, again, like possibility or like a number that seems causally sort of inert. Um, but if you incorporate value into mind, you, you have some benefits. You give a reason for why that mind can exist. So one question is, why does God exist, right? Um, well, let's say God's always existed. Well, what's the basis of that claim? And the basis would be, it's supremely valuable that God should exist, right? It's a claim about value. So, so value comes in as one of the most adventurous ways the tradition has offered to explain not only the existence of why the universe is here, right? It's good and it's beautiful. That's why it exists. <laughs> but also why there could be a, a divine mind, because it's supremely valuable that God exists. I mean, that's just like a quick entry point into, into all that. I know that's a lot, but um, anyway, you can take that where you want. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's cool. And it, it was helpful to the, the, I don't know. I, I kind of had some light bulbs go off uh, the value to mind, mind to value bit for me. I don't know if you saw, I, was, yeah. I had like a shit eating grin on my face. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I actually, <laughs> I had like, I remember too, like I read that like where you kind of because you talk about that in in the book and i read that section while i was on an airplane um and so like it was weird i had like a flashback to like being on the airplane but like oh yeah right okay um nice no it's really interesting to me and i think too like one thing that came to mind as when you were talking about that is something else that is is uh pretty important within the realm of like process thought which is like the idea of panentheism um because i think you know, when you're talking about the intrinsic value of things, um, if you ha- if you like assume panentheism, then uh, at least in my perspective, that means literally everything has intrinsic value, whether it's you and I or a, a rock or a blade of grass or whatever. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of a cool connection that, that came to mind. Yeah. And it's yeah, totally. I mean, panentheism is a such a fruitful theological framework for considering all of this, you know, and I, and I do, you, you know, squabble with concepts of God in that language, pantheism, panentheism, transpantheism later in the book, but there's like a deeper claim here too, like at least for Whitehead. Um, for him, aesthetic value is, is fundamental. It's the, it's the widest and most inclusive form of value uh, that's applicable to the universe. And, and in high, highly evolved states, it becomes moral value, right? But morality, again, is not about some following some code. It's about living a, a beautiful life, right? Um, but this aesthetic value is based in a in nature. It can't be eradicated. It's based ultimately for him in God, right? He has a great statement where he says all order is aesthetic. And if you think about the concept of order, just the very claim of what order is, it is an aesthetic thing. It requires a certain pattern. Um and then he makes the larger claim, for example, that the universe doesn't happen to exhibit a random order. It exists because there is a more fundamental order, and that order is aesthetic. So what do we do with that? How do we make sense of this order? Um, you also and your listeners are expressions of order that is aesthetic. You're an exemplification of aesthetic value in the universe. And in part, a great connection can be made between uh, on this because it is only an achievement of value that can recognize and appreciate value. 
And I think that's what we are in this universe, or at least that's the challenge I think we have to see ourselves in that way. A lot of people don't feel that value, right? They feel valueless. So I'm not saying that you immediately know you're, you know, you're a uh, expression of value because there's a lot of despair too. But I think Whitehead encourages us and, and these other thinkers too to challenge us. Can we see ourselves an expression of value in the universe? Can we problematize value and find its origin and its uh, remedy in something of supreme value? namely God, right? What well, the tradition is termed God. Um, so anyway, maybe that was a tangent, but I, I just think that it's it's such an adventurous and important discussion. And, and, and people need to know that they belong. They need to know that they have value and that there is deeper modes of value that they are participating in and that they express. At its best, I think our traditions are, are offering this and we could frame it in different ways, but but it's been important for me, and it's not just Yahoo stuff, man. There's ways you can argue to this, uh, not just the ways that I do it. So, yeah. Anyway. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Well, uh, Andrew, this has been like a ton of fun. Um, I would love to keep picking your brain, and perhaps we'll have to do that again sometime. Um, especially because I Absolutely. I know you have some uh some fun stuff you've been working on, um, but because like also i want to let listeners know where they can can uh find you in your work and such but i i just kind of to wrap things up um i'm gonna ask you what's probably an unfair and difficult question <laughs> so forgive me <laughs> but um as as we close out our conversation and you think about mind value and cosmos and you think about the people listening to this uh podcast um what is it that you want them to take away from our conversation or from engaging your, your book, Mind, Bio, and Cosmos. Um, yeah. So like I said, it's an unfair question, but I'm interested to see what, <laughs> what you have to offer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. I'd say, given what we've been talking about, I would say to your listeners, man, the, the rabbit hole, all this is extremely deep. You know, you can take it, as far as you want to, and, and as far as I'm concerned, life is an opportunity to do that, right? There's an existential <laughs> injunction for us to take our experience and our standing in the universe seriously. So I, I would say maybe just a couple things for them. One, you're, you're an expression of the universe. You're a, a, not an exception, but an exemplification of it. And what the universe is up to is it's in the business of producing value in higher and higher states of value. I would argue that you are yourself that, right? You're an expression of value in the universe. And this also pushing through you helps direct what your life should be doing. See if you cannot produce more value, add more value to the world. If you do that, there's a deep sort of connection, right? The value you produced is rooted in the value you are, which is rooted in the primordial value, which God is which is also mine, right? We don't want to forget about that, right? So, so see if you can see yourself as an expression of value. What would, that, what would that do to you? How would that change the way you live and be? Can you see yourself belonging here instead of being an alien in this universe? Because I can tell you, you're not an alien. You're part and parcel of it, and you do belong here. And maybe your being and your longing can connect so that you can find a sense of belonging too. Uh, that's what I would hope. Um, that's what I, I hope myself, and I struggle with it every day, um, you know? But that's all right. It's, it's just a part of this of this grand adventure that I've sort of been been talking about. So that's what I would leave leave your listeners with. And, uh, and, it, and if people are interested in finding out more and keeping 
posted on what I'm up to. If you go to andrewmdavis.info, I try to keep that updated and you can reach out to me there. There's a lot of cool texts on the way and fun ways to get involved and courses and books that are that are on the horizon. So, And I just like hearing people's journeys anyway, so feel free to reach out, just connect, you know? Anyhow. Yeah, sweet, man. Well, I'm excited for uh, some of your work that's on the horizon. And hopefully if I didn't scare you away, we can uh, have more conversations in the future um, and engage some of those new things. Uh, so. I look forward to it. Absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah, sweet. All right, man. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in and, and hanging out and uh, nerding out with us uh, today. Yes. I appreciate it. And uh, as always, guys, go in peace. Thanks, Josh.